Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. My name is Tandy, and I'm joined today by Katie and Lisa. And we are back for Beer Lingo. We are on our second episode of Beer Lingo Explained. And um, in our last episode, we spoke about the way that beer is described. So beer descriptors, things like flavors and aromas and the way that we talk about beer. And today we're going to go a little bit more technical, and we're going to talk about some brewing terms. Um, it'll probably still be kind of some of the basics, but that's okay. We've got to start somewhere. And we've sort of also chosen words that are just fun to say. You know, these are words that are a little bit, well, they're they're tickling, aren't they? You know, they, they tickle they us are. in some or other way. <laughs> I, like, so, <laughs> I like the way you say tickling. It's like, it's like <laughs> hmm, what could that mean? Because there really are some very funny sounding words, you know, when, when it comes to beer brewing, whether you're tasting it or making it, there's some really interesting words all around. So we're going to focus on some of the, the weirder sounding ones, but try and keep it to brew day only. And we will go largely in order of how you actually brew. Um, so for homebrewers everywhere at home maybe you're brewing while you're listening some of these might make sense to you maybe you know them some of them might be new to you so we will see but before we um go into all of our funny sounding words let's talk about what we're drinking and just before we do that we're just going to remind you all that all of our back catalog and social media links are all on our website so we're beerladies.com and we're beer la- at Beer Ladies Pod on Twitter, Mastodon, Twitter, I've said Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the things. Find us there, links to merch, links to buying us coffee. It's all there. So, okay, friends, what are we drinking? Lisa, let's start with you. So I was in Belfast this past weekend and I brought back a bunch of local beers, some of which you can get some of here, but some of which I've only seen up there. So I have Beer Hut Brewing Company, drop it like it's, hop so i hope we all <laughs> see what they did there oh um, who doesn't yes. love a punny beer oh no we, we're here for it we're here for it so they they are up in county down so excited to see this one it is a pale ale although i'm holding it up it is certainly more on the hazy side although you know there's definitely oats in there they're very clear you know water barley oats wheat hops yeast you know uh hops are mosaic you cannot and motueka so very exciting there. Uh, but yeah, it's only 4.3%, so nothing too crazy. Good for a school night. And uh, 
There you go. That's I heard Tandy's, Tandy's least favorite hop being mentioned. <laughs> but oh, no, my least, nice my least favorite hop. It's nice. You, you know what? You know what was very funny is that I was speaking to somebody recently, and for the life of me, I can't remember because clearly beer. But <laughs> we were talking about the fact that Eucanot, which used to be called Equinox, right. um, had oh, I think it was Rich, Rich from the NHC, and apparently the hop company or the growers who make it are adamant that this hop does not taste like green pepper as in um yeah, yeah. and whereas i've maintained that i can taste that hop a mile off and it tastes like green pepper to me and i can distinguish it all the time and he told me that there was a batch during some period i think in the mid 2000s or 2010s which apparently did taste like green pepper so potentially mm. I had one of those batches in a beer that I, oh, I saw lightning. Yay. Sorry. Yes, distraction. it's happening. <laughs> we were all just commenting for everybody listening that we've yeah. got thunder and lightning today in Ireland, which is not that common. So we're all no. <laughs> excited. No. So yeah, if, if you see uh, some editing in this, in the yes. video, you'll know it's because our power got cut and someone, someone <laughs> to go away and come back. But apparently that hop does not taste the green pepper and that everybody is having a bit of a, uh, you know, kind of collective memory effect of the fact that this hop tastes <laughs> like green pepper. I disagree, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see. You tell oh, me, Lisa, if you can funny. taste it. I, I'm not getting a green pepper from it, but it is it is very in the tropical side of things. Mm. Uh, although I did pick up some other beers that are much more sort of old school West Coast, but those are in my fridge, saving them for the weekend. So Excited to do a compare contrast though. Um, but yeah, definitely I had a fair few things that were new to me while I was up there, even though it was only a 22 hour trip, but uh, <laughs> you know, priority still got in a couple decent beers. Although funny story and anyone who follows me on Instagram will have seen it. I asked for a local beer and they brought me a harp. So that was uh, glorious. Yeah, that was fast. Yes. Uh, and, I, and that was, you know, when the, when the fellow brought it, I had to do it really. He's just sort of shrugged and that was, you know, fine. It was, we were with a big group, but uh I did get other that beer that was local <laughs> and was good, but the harp was just funny. So there yeah. you go. Ask for a specific <laughs> local beer when in Belfast, folks. Don't don't leave it to chance. Is it even brewed in Belfast, though? Is it part of it? I think That's... at one point it was. I don't know if it still is. Okay. So it was brewed in Dundalk. Same. Maybe. Or... Which I guess is Same. slightly further. You know, it's close enough to the border, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to really work to make it more local than, you know, the several other things that are brewed literally like around the corner from where I was. But, you know, <laughs> you know, technicalities. And again, I did have a lovely time and everything else I had at a proper, you know, beer bar or, you know, craft beer pub got me good stuff. But I did think that was funny. So mm. shout out to Harp, the local beer of Belfast. <laughs> so. I love it. Oh, that's but great. I digress. <laughs> Katie. Katie, what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Can you see my can? I am Ooh, drinking yes. a Maybach. Uh, nice. From Hope. Ooh. I love that. It was so good. Oh, how wonderful. My second week in a row drinking a Bach. Ooh. Yes. I know. Ooh, what does it mean? What means I love Bachs. Yeah, we don't get them often enough. So, yeah. yeah. So this is a special limited edition, number 29. And uh, what does it say? Alcohol fire, 7.5%. I've just had a quick taste. Yeah. It's probably not um, a Monday night beer, but anyway. But here we are. There's <laughs> IBU 34, color 17, EBC. What's EBC? Something. 
The color scale. Something color. Mm. There we go. And you pair it with sausages, pork, game, camembert, cheese. There you go. Okay. It's nice about giving you pairings. Oh, yeah. There's uh, a whole little history of what is a Maybach. And uh, our host from last season was in Germany. And I saw that she posted oh. that she was at a Maybach fest. And I'm like, yes, oh, Erica. Erica. <laughs> oh, Erica, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I love my box. Yeah. So, my box are lovely. And my yeah. for May, so it's the perfect season for my box. Yes. And they only really come out now this time of year anyway. Nice one, Katie. I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah. And have to find oh, it. This is what it looks like for those watching. Oh, oh that's a lovely, beautiful, it's a good... deep amber color. Very mm. red, really. Yeah, I think it might, mm. that might look a bit darker uh, on maybe. the camera than it okay. is in reality. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Most good. Well, I've also stuck local. I have got Kinnegar or Kinnegar, uh, Lime Burner Pale Ale. Um, recently, I was thinking about the fact that you don't seem to find a lot of pale ales anymore, or maybe mm. imagining this. But, you know, you see a lot of session IPAs, uh, hazy IPAs. You see a lot of IPAs in general, and some of them could really be in pale ale territory. But... I just thought I'm going to try and find a couple of parallels because in a way I want to remember what the difference is. <laughs> um, also very handy because I am going off to judge London Amateur Brewers this week. And so I've decided that for the days this week, I'm going to drink a few beers, practice my BJCP note-taking and scoring. And I did this one before the pod, so, you know, whatevs. But here it is. It's quite pale. It's like a pale gold um, it's got a bit of haze to it. And when it pours, it's got a beautiful head, quite a frothy, thick head. And it dissipates, but it stays, which is nice. Nice for a parallel. And this one has definitely got some decent bitterness. Um, and if you go and read my blog, uh, you can go and see that I don't think it has enough hop aroma and hop flavor, but that's okay. It's still a lovely beer and I'm enjoying it. And Tandy, is your blog linked from our beer ladies podcast website it's not actually i'll put it into the show notes but it's craftgeeksa.com so there we are um and lisa give your blog a shout out here too please since there yeah, are two of us depending what's easier for people to find i'm either lisagrim.com which i think is easy or possibly easier for some people to remember you can also get it at weirdbeergirl.com it just redirects it's magic so mm -hmm. there it is so, okay, friends, let's talk about some brewing terms. And I'll start us off with, with the first one. And the first one is wort, <laughs> which is kind of a funny word because it's spelt W-O-R-T instead of W-E-R-T, but it's pronounced wort, not wort. And it's not a wart on your foot, it's a it's wort. <laughs> so wort, we, we've mentioned this a few times um, on the podcast, you know, as one does, but wort is the liquid that beer is before the yeast is added. So it's basically got your grains in it that have been strained off, your hops in it that have been boiled. And it's, it's there's, there's kind of a common saying that brewers make wort and yeast makes beer. So that's how you yeah. can think of it. Yeah. I like that. That'd be a nice, you know, instead of live life love, you can have <laughs> brewers make wort, <laughs> yeast yeah. makes beer on your wall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it helps to have at least, you know, tried home brewing here and there because when you try those non-alcoholic beers that are not very good, which most of them were for ages, they taste like wort. It's like yeah. tasting kind of your unfermented, mm -hmm. you know, just 
you know, just sort of tea bag of beer or what will be beer. But now there are better ones out there that don't taste like wort, but that is still my low bar for any non-alcoholic yes. beer that doesn't hit the mark. It just tastes like wort and then and then we're done. So yeah, and that's the baseline because what wort really is is it's all of the sugars and all of the hop flavors and aromas and oils and everything into this liquid. So if you taste wort, it tastes sweet. Um, and it's because the yeast needs to eat that sugar to be able to ferment it, creating both CO2 and also alcohol. So it tastes sweet. And that's why non-alcoholic um, beers sometimes are just a lot sweeter and they taste. If, if you've ever had um, Horlicks, Horlicks is a malted drink. Yeah. And that's what wort smells like and tastes like before you add hops. Um, and that's that's the only way I can really describe it is like Horlicks. That's, you know, that's a really apt I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's much of a muchness too. Like it's very mm -hmm. one note, um, which again, after the lovely fermentation happens, you, you get all these other colors that come out, but not, they're not there in just in your, just in your word. So. Mm. Indeed. Indeed. So on to the next one, then we could go to sparging. Yeah. Um, and that's the, you know, one of the next steps in, in the brewing process. Lisa, do you want to tell us what sparging is? Oh, gosh. So I, well, I'm also going to talk about making beer with no sparge methods, but uh, a, a little bit, a little bit here and there. But um, no, you you go on, because this is one of those things where cool. I'm like, I memorized it for BJCP, and I know <laughs> where it happens and when it happens, but I haven't done it in a long time. So that's it's all good. Yeah, that's all good. And I have done so, no homework for this episode. So. <laughs> and I know you were rude recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tandy, you're going to, you're going to do this. That's grand. So sparging is the step that happens after the mash. And the mash is the very first step of, of making beer, which is when you put your grains into your water and heat it up and let the sugars come out. Sparging is what, when you basically lift or remove the grains from the mash and what you're really doing is pouring on more water at a sort of maximum temperature of 72 uh, degrees uh, Celsius. And what you're doing is you're rinsing the grains. You're trying to get all of the leftover sugars and the leftover proteins and, and, and things from the grains. You're rinsing them so that you've got a slightly fuller volume in your boil kettle and um, to get your maximum flavor out of your, and your maximum efficiency, which is another handy term here, um, your efficiency in your mash it's to maximize your efficiency, which means taking out the maximum amount of fermentable sugars from your grains. So sparging is just rinsing. So it's just jugs of water, often about a liter at a time, that you're pouring over your grain bed. It helps to filter. Well, it filters through the grain bread, bed, <laughs> bread, goes down into the, into the kettle, and it takes with it all the leftover sugars. It also helps, it can help to... Um, clarify things later on, but I'm not going to make bold claims. The real bit is to get your, get all the sugars so that you've got lots of, um, lots of nice fermentable things for your yeast babies. And yeast babies. <laughs> it's like spider babies. Sorry, go on. <laughs> We're all very giddy, aren't we? It's <laughs> great. Must be the lightning and thunder. Yeah, yeah. So a, a home brewer on a really small setup, would they sparge? Mm. Yeah. So it, it depends on how you're doing it. So if you're using something like a grandfather or a grain master, you know, one of these kind of all-in-one kits, what it, what it is, is that there's a 
kind of a, a basket inside your main kettle that holds your grains and you lift this basket. It's quite heavy. You lift this basket. Oh, wow. It's got a lot of water and grain in it. You know, call it five to seven kilograms of grain plus the water weight. So you're lifting it out and you almost sit it on top of your kettle. It, it often has a bit of a shift where um, legs will sit onto little shelves and the, the height of the kettle then almost doubles and then you start pouring your water over once it's drained all the way through and you just keep pouring until you've got to your desired uh, pre-boil um, volume and, and that's it and you hope that your efficiency is good. And your efficiency is, you know, is obviously related. It's, it's, the, it's how much of the grains, sugars did you get from the grain, you know, from the malt. So if you've had a, a, a good efficiency day, at a homebrew level, good efficiency could be 70% efficient. So what's left over in the grains is in and around 30% of the sugars. At brew house levels, the so commercial levels, they'd go probably even a bit higher in terms of efficiency. You'd probably get 80 to 85% efficiency. Now, one of the, the ways that homebrewers can go wrong is by not testing the efficiency of their mash. Mm. So if you're testing along the way, so what happens is you've put your grains, your malt into your water, you've now sparged, um, or you could you could take samples just before you sparge, just after you sparge, there's ways to do this. And um, if you're finding that your beers are coming out and they're a bit thin or they're a bit overly dry or they don't quite have the body, they don't quite have the fullness for what you had, it's often due to mash efficiency. So one of the biggest um solutions, I guess, or one of the biggest suggestions is to make sure that you're stirring a lot during your mash, especially when you add your grains in first, your malt, because they tend to clump together and then the water doesn't penetrate and doesn't get all of those lovely sugars out. So make sure to add your grains in slowly, stir often and keep it circulating either with, with your technology, your kit or by using a spoon. So whether you're doing it on a stove and you've just got a bag that you're pulling up and um, you could rinse them. But a lot of people that are doing small batches don't really sparge because you'll have a much um, lower grain to water ratio to begin with. Yeah. So you've got a better chance of getting all those sugars out the first time. Whereas if you're making a very big beer or if you're using these kits that are taking 30 liters and you're putting eight kilograms of grain in, you do need to sparge, definitely. Yeah, like we rarely do when because we try to make things in such small, you know, small amounts, like you know, sort of a three, sort of three gallon kit. We have something like that, but it's not worth it to do it most of the time. So I'm always like, that's that thing mm -hmm. that we never do. But but you could. So yeah, a lot of people don't sparge, um, and there are plenty of experiments out there for even lagers, and it doesn't matter what kind of beer. Where what you do is instead of adding, let's say, a ratio of uh, four parts water to one part grain, you know, you add a lot more, you almost fill your kettle. And regardless of how much uh, grain you've got or malt you've got, and just skip the sparge. I think a lot of people like that. I've only ever tried it once. And it happened to be on a double brew day. And that was my second brew. And it just didn't come out right anyway. <laughs> so I just didn't go back to that. But there yeah. are plenty of people that do no sparge. And all it is, is adding more water in the initial mash. And then you don't need to rinse the grains as much or at all and it's a fun word to say so mm. <laughs> it is by the way the most 
painful, annoying part of a homebrew day <laughs> is sparging because, because you're doing it kind of one liter at a time and you're adding often about 18 liters, you know, it could be 14 or 18 liters depending on how much you've got left and how much you need. It takes a while and it's, it's a little bit thankless, but I do think it's better for efficiency um, and most people will still sparge even if they, uh, even if they only harvest. So you can play around with that, you know, by playing with your initial volume of water, you can play around with how much you need to sparge. If you were only sparging seven liters, fair enough, it wouldn't be as time consuming. Yeah. And then related to a sparge, I'm sneaking a word in here is a stuck <laughs> sparge. Ooh, stuck sparge. <laughs> so, stuck sparge. So this is oh. every, every brewer's and home brewer's worst nightmare. It is when you are rinsing your grains, you're sparging, but nothing is coming out the bottom. Ooh. So effectively, something's happening within this grain bed and it's stuck. Now, this happens often if you're doing um, recipes that have got a lot of wheat or a lot of oats. So very protein rich, gelatinous type grains. Um, and it's because they kind of, they, they form this almost gelatinous coagulation and it doesn't let water pass through. And so a stuck sparge is everyone's worst nightmare because the way that you combat it is to, you could almost poke holes into your grain bed, but then you lose efficiency or you can try and stir the grain bed, which can help, but it's time consuming. And um, the best way to prevent it is to use rice holes and rice holes are really just, they're the outside husk of rice and they add no flavor. They don't add um, sugars or anything to the beer. But what they do is it's like adding fiber to your oats, even though your oats are fibrous. It's like adding xylem husk or something. It cuts through the sort of gelatinous nature of these protein rich uh, malts and it makes drainage a lot easier. Um, and so you need to almost put in your um, your rice holes, let them soak up. And actually the best tip is to put them in first before the rest of your grains um, when you're mashing. Just know that if you're doing 50% wheat in your beer, like with a vice, um, sometimes a saison has got that much uh, wheat, put your rice holes in first, let them hydrate, then add the rest of your, your grains in. And that helps a lot because to have the rice holes in between all of your other grain bits helps it to drain and sparge a lot easier in the end. Yeah. Go. Pro tip. I feel <laughs> like I feel like it's like little kids who all want to talk to each other and not listen to the teacher. <laughs> and the rice holes are like adults in between them going, yes. talk to each other. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So the next word in our list. I think it sounds like something from a Doctor Who episode. Partigile. <laughs> okay, so that may be why I like it, because it, it does sound <laughs> incredibly nerdy, and it does go sort of speak to kind of historical brewing techniques, but also just kind of, frankly, doing this on the cheap in some ways, too, because, you know, even though it looks like such a fun word, uh, you know, or sort of hyphenated word, partigile, it's really just, you know, you're getting multiple beers from this single mash. So that could be two beers, that could be three beers. Again, we'll, we'll get into sort of the sparging piece here as well, but basically you've done like this initial mash and you're, you know, the idea is you can use this one grain bill to make all kinds of different beers, whether it's just sort of the first runnings of one that's gonna be a stronger version of something. And then the second runnings where you are going to sparge, like we were just talking about, then you might have kind of your table beer that you're making from that. So you might have 
you know, for example, kind of, you know, let, let's say what would have been kind of your, your classic sort of just very broadly, like your ale and then your table beer, just very, very sort of generic almost. And, and there's certainly a lot of evidence that this has been done, frankly, since like time immemorial, because it's cheap. And this way you're getting, you know, you're getting the, the most use out of, uh, you know, what you have ingredients wise. But nowadays, and, and again, when we look at it from a home brewing perspective, people try to get more more complicated with it and try to say, okay, well, the first one is going to be this, but the second one will be this. And we can even use different yeasts and, and just go to town with, you know, still using this initial same mash, but then saying like, for example, the first one might be a Weizenbach, but then we'll do a Dunkelweizen with the second, or I'm looking at some of the other examples, like the first one might be a barley wine and the second one will be a pale ale, just depending on what your, you know, your initial base ingredients were. And then, you know, what you're trying to get out of it from a kind of ABV perspective, but it's it's a kind of um one of these things too though that also like if we if people go back and listen to our episode with Martin Cornell, there's a lot of myths around this kind of thing too because you know you you also get the idea that oh this would have been made and set aside and then this would have been blended and then you know et cetera et cetera and that's probably true in some cases, but a lot of this is probably when people were making beer on sort of a household or say a state level they would have done you know your first runnings second runnings third runnings but then it's still all kind of broadly speaking the same beer, just at different strengths. But I do mm. think it's interesting that it's come back into homebrewing, but with this extra degree of difficulty where we're trying to get different things from it, like, you know, noticeably different things, not just different strengths. So mm. I don't know, Tandy, if you've ever played around with it, because I feel like, does it really work? Because I, I can definitely see you're going to get stronger version, weaker version. Fair yes. play, but I've never certainly tinkered around with like, let's do a different yeast in this one, or let's do, you know, no, like I just, it seems like a lot you of know, work. There's a lot of people that will do a split batch, but it won't be a particle. So yeah. what they'll do is they'll mash and they'll take that initial that initial liquid, split it into two, and then add a different set of hops and maybe even a different yeast strain, yeah. and then compare them side by side because. You know, if you want to test something like your your malt flavors or whatever the case is, or you want to see the interaction between different kinds of hops or different kinds of yeasts with the same base, um, that's perfectly normal. Yeah. There's another way to split it. So after your boil, once you've got your hops in, you could split it and test two different strains of yeast. So that's different from partagal, as yeah. Lisa said. So you know, you're taking you're taking your mash and your first, I want to say your first runnings, it's almost like whiskey, isn't it? But it's not exactly. quite. Exactly. Same, similar yeah. idea though. Yeah. Yeah. But your first runnings is probably going to be your, your most efficient. It's, it's taken the most sugars and, and fermentable starches out of your grain, taking that away and then taking the same grain bed and mashing it again, potentially sparging it again. And now you've got a different level of efficiency. So probably a much lower one. I, I can't imagine ever doing this unless I was desperate to sort of save the money or I had loads of time right. in terms of preserving my my malt. But I've got to be honest, malt is not the most expensive brewing ingredient. So I don't know if I would, maybe I would one day do this, but I've never done it. It would be interesting though, because, you know, as we said, sometimes your efficiency at a homebrew level can be 60% or 70%. 70 is quite good. And um, mm. If you were trying to get the other 40 or 35% out of your grains, there's a very good reason that you might want to do that because it will. It'll make a lower strength beer that you can hop differently, yeast differently, or add yeast, different yeast to. You can get a totally different beer out of it. 
Now, I wouldn't be as attached to the first beer must be X style and the second one must be Y style or the third BZ style. It would be much more interesting to me to see what you come out with in terms of your pre-boil gravity and then decide how it might work. Um, but if you, you know, if you're using a lot of speciality malts, or if you are, um, if you're quite invested in your malt profile, maybe you do want to reuse and get every single bit of sugar out of it. Why not? But yeah. I've never tried. Never tried. No, but I like Katie. I like your idea that that could be like a really good Doctor Who villain, just partigile. I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. So. <laughs> I do like that too. Yeah. Also, a great drag name. Just saying. People need like drag brewing names. Just it's right there for you. So we could do Pellicle Particle. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Oh. <laughs> Good okay. Times. Let me look. What is next? Do, 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 oh, de decoction mash. Which again is a fun the, um, thing to say. Yep. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the, the obviousness of why this word is in should be apparent. <laughs> uh, decoction <laughs> mash. Oh, Tan, now it makes sense. Uh, we don't all live in the gutter like you do, Tandy. I'll have you know I'm a woman of upstanding. Clutch those pearls, Katie. Clutch them. <laughs> decoction. So decoction mash is another uh, technique. And we've, we've glossed over this a few times in different episodes. Yeah. And anyway, decoction is when you take a part of your mash. So once you're mashing in, your grains are getting all the sugars out. You take a part of this and you go and boil it separately from the rest of your volume. And what you're doing is you're intensifying the malt flavors in this smaller portion of the, um, the you know, of the mash that you've taken out. You're reducing the volume, concentrating it and intensifying it before you add it back in to your main your main volume, your main mash. And what that does is it, it adds to the flavor without adding alcohol strength or heaviness or unnecessary or unwanted uh, kind of off flavors from overdoing it, um, over, overdoing your mash. So a lot of uh, pilsners are done this way. And that's a really interesting one because a pilsner is effectively it's a lager, it's light. Why on earth should you need such malt intensity? But you do, because it is quite a crisp beer that is easy to drink, but it it's very malt prominent. You know, your first sort of flavors are, are quite heavy on the sort of grain sweetness that comes from a Pilsner. And the only way that you'd get that without adding a whole bunch of alcohol um, is to do a decoction. Yeah. So it's just another technique to change or alter the flavor of your grains without changing the overall effect. Yeah, and if you want to have fun, you can throw some some lager brewers in a room together and have them argue whether or not it's necessary anymore mm. because historically it made sense. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of reasons to do this. Yes. On paper, well. you don't really have to, but other people will insist that if you don't, it it's different, so. Yes. So yes. the reason that the debate is alive is because the way that kind of genetic engineering and breeding programs for all these different um, malts have gone is that your Pilsner malts especially have been so altered over the years that you really shouldn't need to do this anymore. You know, in the same way that a lot of people debate whether you really need to boil for 90 minutes or more, as opposed to 60 minutes with Pilsner malt, because it used to, what's known to give off DMS, 
dimethyl mm. sulfide. I'm not going to get that one right, you know, on a whim. But um, it can give off a lot of like sulfury flavors. It's very natural, but if you boil it for longer, it can dissipate away. Now, theoretically, you don't need to do these things because the, you know, the grains have been kind of altered over time yeah. to not really need this. I think you do get some people that are firmly, they do firmly believe that follow the traditional steps because it'll get you the best results. Some people don't do it at all. Some people do kind of quick and dirty pilsners and they probably taste great. I would say your mileage might vary. Try it your own way. Here, here. Yeah. And I, See what works. I, I have seen it on a beer can where it was a double decoction beer and they called it a double brood. Oh. And you're like, <laughs> double brood, really? Remember, Which remember. <sighs> uh, no marketing i'm sorry but can marketing please stop getting involved <laughs> please <laughs> well, traditionally you would find actually triple decoction more common a lot of times than double but you're not going to go out and say it because it's just what's happening under the hood you know more or less it's so. part also, of the brewing yeah exactly so why would you give away your secrets you know yes. if that's what's if that's what's setting your beer apart don't go and tell everybody just do it and be quiet about it They'll wonder what wizardry is happening in your brew house. Exactly. Yeah, air of mystery. There we go. Leave them wanting more. But it's a it's a weird thing. I don't know if it's brewers who want this kind of technicality on the cans because they want to appeal to other brewers or home mm. brewers or aspirational brewers, or if it's kind of marketing, and I'm, maybe I'm being unfair to sort of marketing, but or if it's just like, let's choose a buzzword and just stick it on. But who is it impressing? I don't know. Maybe it would tell somebody who knows quite a lot about beer, like why it might have a slightly richer flavor, even though it's got a low ABV. But maybe it could just be a, a wonderful mystery. I'm not sure. Yeah, and, and I've talked with a brewer about this, and I, I will not say who, who it was, but uh, no one here, someone in America, but he was like, yeah, we, we used to do it that way. And then we stopped because it just wasted everyone's time and it made absolutely no difference to the final product. But for ages, it said <laughs> that we did it. So we had to do it because that was kind of the recipe and the technique right. they inherited from previous brewer. But then he, they sort of quietly changed it and no one noticed. So, but they had the same thing. <laughs> they had to change the marketing because it was in there yes. somewhere. Yes. So there you go. That's actually interesting. I've never thought about people getting stuck, you know, almost getting held to a standard just because it says something. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. If you inherit that recipe, do you keep it or do you start to tinker and then say, "Look, lads, we mm -hmm. made some changes, but you didn't notice." So yeah, you know, there you go. But there mm. you go. Nice. I love an clinical trial. Right. In yes. A brewery. Yes, and they <laughs> they like, have a lot this, of drink. This are they the same? Yeah. Ah, yeah. You didn't know us. <laughs> no, and they had you know years of control group and then changed it. All good. So. <laughs> it works good one what are we defining next so, next it is i would say i would pronounce this uh trub 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 yeah. trub from the german from the german and to me like you know when you are brewing at home it's much more noticeable uh, well i'm sure it's very noticeable in your big commercial brewery because it's making a bigger mess but when you're brewing at home like the bottom of your your pretty glass carboys, which is also kind of a fun word, carboy, mm. you know, but it just ends up covered with the sort of sediment schmutz. And I tend to keep me honest, I want to say it's sort of what's all filtered down your kind of bits of fatty stuff, proteins that didn't, didn't take mm. done. Mm -hmm. So they're just, it's, 
it's kind of everything. So what happens when your beer is uh, fermenting is that the yeast is active, it's eating sugars, but it's, it's, it's also leaving behind some things that are not fermentable. So within your sugars, you know, there's kind of simple and complex sugars and some can be broken down and some can't and it depends on your malts. Let's, let's keep it as simple as possible. Your trub or your trub is all of the sediment and the leftover kind of material that the yeast is not necessarily using or it's done with and it settles at the bottom of your fermenter because it's heavier than the liquid above it. So it can contain proteins, it can contain um, hops, hop particles. So if you've dry hopped, um, you know, you're adding hops back into your um, fermenter and then they disperse their oils and things, but then the actual material sort of floats down. It almost flocculates and coagulates and then it drops because it's heavier. Did and I you hear can other words there? Did I hear other Indeed. words that we might define? Indeed. We'll just we'll just add them all in, you know, flocculate and coagulate and all these all these good terms. I mean, coagulate. You know, if you have cooked before or if you've had terrible shooters before, you might know what coagulation is. So if you mix a if you mix a milky thing with an acidic thing, it can effectively like, break up the proteins in the milky thing. Um, oh, anything with babies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's women's always babies. Revenge. Terrible shooter which was yes a baileys or the like and then yeah. something acidic like a you know apple cider, well it could be anything and it just breaks it all up into something it, it becomes kind of cottage cheesy which sounds terrible or egg drop soupy so you know those kind of proteins kind of stick together but they they're not immersed or well and <laughs> well blended or emulsified into the liquid so all of your, your bits and bobs can coagulate at different times um, and then either drop out or stay in suspension, depending on the size of the particles. And then your flocculation is how much the yeast kind of binds to these different particles and then weighs it down and drops it down. So a yeast that's got good flocculation is one that sort of clears the beer quite well and a badly flocculating yeast can sort of keep it a bit in suspension. So depending on the style you're going for, you would choose a yeast that's got a low, moderate, or high flocculation rate, um, whereas coagulation um, it just depends on your base ingredients. But you can combat it. You can help this sort of trub or this trub settle and settle nicely into something that's a bit more compact by using finings uh, during your boil. And finings, one example is Irish moss. Some people use gelatin. Some people use, I mean, there's some people even use bentonite clay. Yep, Katie. Irish moss, the thing that grows like on the wall, or is it? It's a seaweed. Ah, okay. Yeah, so it's okay. a seaweed. It's yeah. it's a seaweed, and I think it's similar, if not the same, to carrageen. I don't know if that yeah, they're, they're related. Yeah, they're related. I have yeah. picked carrageen from the rocks. That's ah, cool. they're see the New York. There I have go. dried it in, dried it on the land. Oh, not well, yeah. well and. And this is an important point too, because this is one of the things that can make your beer vegan or not vegan, if that's a concern for mm -hmm. whoever might be drinking it. Because again, your point, Tandy, but the gelatin, or if you're using bits of fish, which a lot of people are commercially to, yep. to do that fining. Um, but yeah, but you could be using your Irish moss again, which is not actually moss, but that way it's going to yes. be vegan. The others are yep. not. So you may have to check your label if that is something you are concerned about, because you might think, well, what's not vegan about beer? Well, 
actually quite a few things can happen there. So worth uh, checking your label or asking your brewer. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. I didn't know that. We used to actually sell. We used to dry out, the, pick the carrageen, dry it in the fields, and then sell like little bags of it. Yeah. And um, it was a home remedy. So you would yeah. boil it up, and it would all coagulate, and it would turn into yeah. this like white soupy thing. And it was great. That's for it. Everything and anything. Yeah. You know, you're told just drink, just eat it. Didn't really so taste great, but sure. You know, and did anything taste great in Ireland if, if they, <laughs> back in the 80s? I don't think so. <laughs> so, I mean, the way that these findings work is that they sometimes they've got a lot to do with chemistry that I can't explain, but to do with positive and negative charges and mm. ions and things. But let's just call it they attract all of these sort of heavier particles and they kind of lump together and then they drop because they're heavy. So um, these kinds of things um, can help to clear your beer, but it also helps to keep the tribe or the troop like quite compact, which is handy because if you're going to be moving your beer or taking it off that initial yeast cake, which is your, you know, your yeast, your troupe, everything is kind of sitting at the bottom of your beer. You almost want it to be as condensed and as tightly packed as possible before you move your beer off into a bright tank or into a, you know, a conditioning um, bucket or whatever else you're doing with it, or even bottling straight from it. You want it to be quite tightly compacted. Otherwise you get little bits of this into your beer and it's just not the best experience. It's not going to kill you, but it's just not the nicest thing. Um, yeah. yeah. And there are certainly that's bottle condition styles that have plenty of yes. stuff floating around in your bottle, whether that's bits of old yeast or some of this as well. So certainly some certain Belgian ones, you know, German ones, very normal. Don't freak out. But uh, yeah, be mm -hmm. aware that that's what you're getting. Just, but yeah, it will not kill you. It's fine. Just watch how you pour. Yep. There we go. Will we move from there onto breaks mm. of, of, of different temperatures? A hot breaks, break yes. and a cold break. So hot break and cold break. Um, when you are starting to, you've sparged, and now what you've got is your kettle, which is really, it's just your container that you're boiling your wort in. It's not wort until you've added hops, but fine. Um, when you're boiling, you've added your hops and it's coming up to temperature. What, what you'll see as a brewer is that you start to get kind of foam and things happening. It's almost like cooking pasta. You know, when pasta gets foamy and in a way you don't want it to overboil and, and, and spill, over, spill all over, or the same with potatoes. So you start to get these, these kind of breaks and it's often got proteins or it's carbohydrates. It's all these little bits and bobs that are just getting activated and coagulating and doing all sorts of things while it's getting up to temperature. So your hot break is what happens when you're boiling, you're raising the temperature. The hot break can be broken up by your slotted spoon while you're boiling, and it does just fine. It'll go settle down into the tube afterwards, no stress at all. Um, but it's just a normal part of the boiling process. It happens as things are heating up. And then your cold break is what happens if you don't cool quick enough, if you don't cool your wort quick enough. Now, there are a lot of people who brew out there that don't cool their their wort down quickly and that's okay you do you um but if you are looking for clear beers that don't have suspended particles of, of proteins yeast tops you know all the different bits and bobs you really want to cool it quickly so um when you don't 
cool it quickly enough, you get what is called a cold break. And that is at around 60 degrees Celsius, I think, where again, your proteins start to almost denature and come into their own different forms because it's not being, it's not being dropped out by a quick cool. They've been allowed to be suspended. Now, that can have an effect on the look and the, and the mouthfeel of your beer. It's, it's not going to kill you, but sometimes people will talk about it having slightly more fusel alcohols or slightly more of a DMS flavor and aroma um, sort of hidden in these particles. So I'd recommend do a cold, you know, a cold crash as opposed to a slow overnight cooling. But again, you do you. Figure out your own beer and, and what you like. Yeah, but go. both breaks are just, yeah, proteins and carbohydrates that are getting natured, denatured, and kind of changing at different temperatures along the way. I know. And it's it's like at different temperatures, their hands, I've, I, this is this is how I picture, I have a degree in chemistry, so I, <laughs> I, I got through college by picturing um, molecules and atoms as like having different hands so these are like their charges and it's like oh i want oh, to that's hold a clever you way or i'm gonna push it. you yeah. away and damn you know? katie i wish yeah. i wish you'd been my chemistry teacher yeah, because I would you know i couldn't so get better. that no i got it. it it something clicked in my head and it all made perfect sense to me it's like do i work in it now no but chemistry <laughs> made no sense to me yeah. it, it made the least sense of all the subjects like oh so basically, you know, if you if you're attracting something, you're putting out your hand, and if you're, you know, repelling so it, difference yeah. between a Clever. positive and a negative charge. That's the way I pictured it in my head. There you go. See, we all just needed better, better instruction. Okay, yeah. Rethinking. Okay. Next it's a storytelling. That's I think that's what yeah. we need. <laughs> okay, Pellicle. Let's move on to Pellicle, who is the name okay. of the famous. Beer so, vaccine. That too. It yeah. is. It is. Shout yes. out to Pellicle. Um, yes. But back to chemistry. So, <laughs> gosh, back to chemistry. So, Pellicle is kind of a strange one because for some beers, it's very desirable. For other beers, it is the absolute pits and you'll be throwing that beer out. And a Pellicle is effectively, it's like a, a bacterial biofilm that covers the top of your fermenter, whether it's a carboy or a bucket or you know, whatever the case is, it's, it grows because your ferment has been exposed to a lot of oxygen. Um, you know, typically when you're fermenting, you want to keep oxygen out unless you're trying to do things like souring or, um, you know, adding sort of adding deliberately funky, weird flavors, right. on um, purpose. whether it be yeah. yeah on purpose as opposed to accidental. So a lot of people, if they see a pellicle forming, it starts to, it starts out like a bit of a shiny film, but it becomes really alien looking and it can form the weirdest, coolest shapes on top of your beer. And what it's doing is it's, I, I don't know what it actually does, but I think it kind of feeds from the oxygen. It sours and does, you know, bacterially things into your beer, but it, it's the, it's the guardian now of your beer. Yeah, and I you suppose know, shout out to any commercial breweries that just do open fermenting when they're not doing sour beers. Ooh, because that would be yeah scary. Their yeah. cleaning processes must be got to be. And you know what surprised me in looking into it more was how kind of understudied this is. Like people don't really know what triggers some of these things or what kind of like what's the catalyst or what stops some of them. Yeah, so it's it's all like we we think it might be this, but it's really kind of understudied. So that's fascinating to me that you would expect that all your big breweries would have been 
you know, paid all this money to do the research decades to go because they didn't want that most of the time. But you think that now there's so much more interesting kind of sour beers that we would have we would have nailed this down scientifically, but it's all kind of magic. Like so. I am seeing our whole this whole beer episode of Doctor Who coming together. <gasps> Something is going to come from the pellicle. Ooh. Oh. The curse of pellicle. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Doctor Who oh, no. nerds are coming after me. <laughs> no. Then on the other hand, you get Connemara Brewing, who do a lot of open fermentation, if not all of it, and their beers are super clean, like squeaky, squeaky clean, yeah. and they're lagering, amazing. and they're doing all sorts. But it's amazing how, um, you know, keeping out the bad bacteria, keeping the good stuff in, and all of that is just part of a good brewing practice. So, yeah, shout out yeah. to anybody that can do this kind of thing because most people wouldn't go near open fermentation unless they were yeah. trying not to. But pellicles can also, it, it can remind people of mold. It's not mold, but it kind of looks like mold. It looks like slimy mold. And it almost looks like a kombucha um, scoby in a way, except that it's more sitting across the whole top and not necessarily with an iceberg alien life underneath it. That's kind of a strange who. thing. Yes, don't have nightmares. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now weird. I'm, I'm thinking of some cosplay now. Okay, I, I've got no I'm a bad idea. Okay, filing that away. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our next word. Is that krausening? Did I pronounce mm. that right? I don't know. What yeah, krausening or krausening. So. This starts to happen when you are fermenting. In your early fermentation, what starts to happen is that your yeast, your yeast starts to get very active very quickly. Um, and you start to form on top of your beer that's in your bucket or your carboy quite a interesting looking sediment kind of bubbly sort of filmy thing on top of your beer. Now, what it's doing is that your yeast is activated. There's a bit of a CO2 bed over your over your beer, but it's it's got like high kind of foamy activity and it just shows that that things are going well it yeah, eventually dissipates and this is a good thing it eventually kind of dissipates dissolves and becomes part of the troop but it's your initial sign that fermentation is going really well there you go yeah so it's happy beer at least or happy mm. will be there so mm. Ooh, what's a lovey bond Love bond. It's really just your colors. Yeah, oh, just mm. your color scale. So it's it's just this great word. I I presume someone's name. I should know, but have, <laughs> have not looked it up. But uh, yeah, I mean, we have, there are so many different sort of color charts, like we were saying before. You know, reading off uh, reading off your beer earlier. But yeah, it's really just how you're making sure that you're at the right point in that color scale for your your style. So, mm. but I, I do know some people like to put it on the can too to say it's you know whatever love a bond and then some people even pour it out and then get you know very pedantic about being like but is it and well some people well, have a lot of time on their hands all so. you have to do is measure the wavelength and you can easily tell. see there you go <laughs> yeah oh yeah because yeah. My, the, my hope beer had a color on it i don't think yeah. it's, it's ebc it's not love it's a different so it scale yes yeah yeah, so, color I mean, scale or something, but that's it's the same. It's a different version of the same thing, kind of. It's yeah. exactly that. It's just a different scale. So, um, I use an app called uh, Beer Styles. It's like a, a BJCP app, and in it there is a color chart. So I'll show you on screen here. Yeah. Where you can um see the different colors of beer. These are EBC 
um, colors, but there is a calculator online where you can go and convert EBC to Lovey Bond to SRM. So there, there are at least three different charts that you could go with. So EBC4, which is a straw, so your very palest sort of light lagers um, and potentially blondes, that's an EBC color of four. For Lovey Bond, it would be 2.06. For SRM, it's 2.03. So maybe, maybe the handiest thing is if you're flipping between them, just sort of slightly double Lover Bond and SRM into EBC, but pick one and stick to it um, yeah. for the most part. Oh my yeah. God. It's like shoe sizes. Am I right? Oh, oh exactly. Could we just have <laughs> one set, please? Yes. Oh, like, are real, you but UK yes. shoe size, US shoe, 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 mm. shoe size, European? It's like, come on. Yeah, so we can blame Mr. Loverbond, you know, like like most of this kind of thing, late 19th century, they liked to, you know, do come this kind of thing. And name them Scales were themselves. very big, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, obviously it could only go from what you could, you know, physically see with your, with your human eyes to, to you know, a greater extent. Uh, before now they can get very, very, you know, like you say, you could, you could just shoot a laser through it and say, what is it really? So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's just a fun name. So there you go, Mr. Loverbond had a fun name, so. Yes, he had a fun name, but did he have any chill? Oh. Like, hey, ah, did you like <laughs> my what segue? You did there. Ah. Oh, there you were going. <laughs> Oh, that's too fun. Oh. So the next one is chill haze. And chill haze is, you know, related to, but not the same thing as cold break. Um, so chill haze is when your beer has come out hazy, but it shouldn't have. And often it's got to do with not chilling fast enough or not using fine ends or, um, you know, not, uh, there's, a, there's a few other things, Lisa, you might also help me out on those ones yeah. but there's a few things and it's it's again it's suspended kind of proteins these tops that have made your beer look hazy but they weren't meant to be so imagine a lager that came out hazy not the greatest look um for that yeah, kind and of I, th I think I think a lot of them are like temperature related like you said it's about like that often that cooling process so everything else you did may be spot on but you just have a tiny tweak that you might need in uh, you know, just in the, in that cooling process quite, quite often. So you didn't do anything wrong per se. You just didn't spend enough time yeah. in X or Y phase. And something yeah. you're not going to know because it might work just fine on one day and not another, just depending on your outside temperature mm. and all these other factors that, you know, are kind of under exactly. control. So. And sometimes it happens if your beer has been stored very cold. Um, and as soon as the beer warms up a little bit, it kind of goes away. You know, yeah, yeah, I see. And that's that a kind lot. of interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. However, some breweries, especially commercial breweries, you know, they'll um, cold crush the beer, ferment it, do all the things. They'll filter it and chill it very cold, and that almost prevents anything from happening as well. So, it's one of those. Look, I'm not the expert on a chill haze, but if it doesn't go away when it's warmer, then look at your brewing process to, for a yeah. solve. If it goes away when it's warmed up keep it at a temperature that you're happy with that. Yeah, exactly. Because definitely I would say almost everything I judged at, at the homebrew competition had some element of it. But again, like you say, in a lot of them, it did go away once it warmed up and then that's okay. And and again, it's mm. not a huge fault still, like unless it's really obvious, like most of the yeah. time though, it's just a thing. It's probably fine. So all good. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's also one of the reasons not to drink many beers at such freezing cold temperatures. So yes, I I, yeah. get, I have to say I, I went to a, a different bar in Belfast and I, I they gave me one of those you know frozen uh, glasses where I was like I've not seen this since like oh gosh probably a good like oh, fifteen years <laughs> but I was like oh okay. you entered the time warp. I, you know, it kind of did seem like it, but no, it was, it was, it was, it was fun. We had a good time. I actually had a good beer. I, I got a, a beer in a bottle, but uh, they said, do you want a glass? And I said, sure. Not expecting that. And the friend I was with, hello, Paula kept saying, steal the glass, steal the glass. I'm like, no, we're grownups. I'm not stealing the glass. And also it was frozen. I don't want to steal a frozen glass, but I, I digress. Don't have frozen glasses, people. There's no point. So. No, no benefit to them. But then what's the point? What's the point in those novelty beer glasses that is, are always advertised for Father's Day, never Mother's oh, Day, that you yes. put in the freezer? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know the ones, yeah. Yeah. Because, because, and this is, and I, I mean this with all the love in the world for commercial breweries, because they do an amazing job of consistently providing beers that taste exactly the same. But a lot of, a lot of the beers that we drink ice, ice, ice cold, if you warmed them up a little bit, you would taste that they're not, they're not really as crisp or as delicious if they're a bit warmer. So it's become a marketing thing to keep them extra cold. You know, if you've seen the taps where it's like frozen over, um, South Africa was big on that as well. So Castle Light and had frozen tap handles and all the things. It's just become a thing where you're actually hiding the flavor. And if you hide the flavor, you can drink more of it. Um, because it's not overwhelming your senses. And that's a good thing for a commercial brew, but not it's not what you want for every other beer. Don't be putting an Irish stout in a chilled <laughs> or frozen glass, please. <laughs> no, no, thank you. No. There we go. There we go. Tandy has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> like I've always got, you know, shaking my finger, wagging my finger opinions on, on this podcast, but uh, someone's got to do some things here. <laughs> all right, well, moving on to Bunghole. Here we go, last one of the set, I believe. Because it's so perfect. <laughs> I think everybody oh, knows gosh. what a Bunghole is, we just wanted to say it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So in casks, um, in casks there is a, a top of the cask um, where you're effectively fitting either a cork or a rubber bung. <laughs> so the bung hole is just the hole where you'd be filling or uh, filling the cask or filling a keg. It's not really a keg thing, it's more of a cask thing or a barrel thing. It's the hole where the cork goes or where the... <laughs> and it's the as bung. simple as that. It's the bung, yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And it's a real thing. It's just, there it is. It has a funny name. Well, it is a funny name now. It, you know, it started off as the thing, and then the rest of us were, you know, spent hundreds of years being childish, and here we are. So <laughs> we're allowed to sometimes, right? Absolutely, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I do feel like everybody at home, if we've missed some particularly funny or interesting words in the, in the beer or brewing space, do let us know because we can do another series another you know beer lingo beer terms uh, you know decoded series but i think that um <laughs> this one was was just the fun words right yeah exactly. and he loves her ticklish words she called them i <laughs> thought that was so cute they do they tickle me like they make me laugh these words they're fun <laughs> they are fun and again and then there's some you know we, we drop little knowledge all through so hopefully if anyone's just getting into brewing and is like you know, doesn't really know what some of these things mean, or if you're me and forgets because you don't do certain parts of these things very often, you know, it's good to remind yourself. And so. then get put on the spot. And... Eh, it's all good. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, well, that's it. So, uh, friends, if there are no other words that we want to define, I think we should let all the let all the peeps go and enjoy their day, their evening, their night, wherever they are. If you are brewing, let us know. Send us a photo of oh, you listening it. to the podcast with, you know, with your brew day. That would be amazing. We'd love to see it. Yeah, and if you're watching the Eurovision tomorrow, Eurovision. send us a picture of your parties. Love to see it. Indeed indeed so send us all of your eurovision picks send us your brewing picks send us your suggested terms for what you want us to define in only the way that we can define it <laughs> you know send us all of your suggestions and and all of your um, compliments complaints and love all the way to what what are we beer ladies podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at beer ladies pod literally all the socials beer lady pod beer ladies pod or beer ladies podcast you can find us everywhere and uh, yeah, Lisa, Katie, thank you so much for bringing your knowledge and bringing your fun uh, to <laughs> Katie. <laughs> Katie's smoking and doing things. You I did the chemistry. Up. You did I the just chemistry. Turned up. Yeah, you, you've given us arms for attracting and arms for repelling and chemistry yeah. terms. I was just thinking about that and really like just say hands are positive. No, because a positive and a positive are going to repel. So I'm going to have to think that one is like a claw mm. and one is like a thing. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, it, once you figure it out, let me know. It because makes sense in my, my head at, at the time. You know, my, my chemistry teacher just didn't even know what to do with me. So, yeah. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> okay, well, friends, we'll see you next week. And everybody listening at home will be in your ears next week or on your YouTube screens. Watch us and listen to us wherever you get your pods, wherever you can find a YouTube. We'll, we're there. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.